The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how you doing, man? Hey, Ben, doing okay. How about you? Never better. Never better? So great. Wow, that sounds false. <laughs> As the Monty Python said, my nipples explode with delight. Thank you for uh, the uh, Monty Python reference and the lovely visual dancing through my head right now. Uh, You're welcome. Hey, Ben, who's on the show today? I could not be more excited. We have W. Kamau Bell, who's a comedian whose work I have loved. He also is a documentary filmmaker. He made uh, We We Have to Talk About Cosby, or mm. We Need to Talk About Cosby, oh, yeah. which we talked about on the show when it came out. He's very insightful, very intelligent, sometimes provocative. And uh, he has a new documentary on HBO called 1000% Me Growing Up Mixed, in which he's mostly interviewing kids between, say, 6 and 12. Wow. And and their parents. But I'd say the kids probably are more of the running time than not. And uh, it's a really moving documentary, but also uh, made me realize what a shallow little jerk I was at that age. Like, I, I was not nearly as thoughtful as any of these children. Wow. So thought provoking and self-reflexive. All right. Great. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know, I mean, here's the thing, like he's known as a comedian and now I guess as a documentary filmmaker, but he is an excellent, excellent interviewer. He's so good at interviewing. It's a breezy doc. It's about an hour long and it really, it really makes you think on, on levels that a lot of us, uh, people who are not mixed race, we don't always think about it. And and it's really uh, uplifting. How often do you hear me talk about uplifting things? Almost never. So, uh, and and you enjoyed it. So that, that's high praise. I, I will totally yeah, check no, out a thousand percent me. Yeah, it sounds great. It's really good. Before we get to our uh, close focus, which is pressing, we have some business we need to wrap up here. We have a book giveaway. We sure do. The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar by Robin R. Means Coleman and Mark Harris. And uh, if you haven't heard the interview with Mark Harris, you can go back and give it a listen. He's a really cool, fascinating guy. I think this is an amazing and a fun read. Like I really just enjoyed reading this book. It was, I, I laughed out loud several times and uh, felt a little self-conscious about some of the movies that I loved growing up. But it, we get to that in the interview. It's like, he's not here to tell us not to like things. All right. Well, I need you to pick a number between one and 118. I'm going to go with 83. 83. All right. Let me uh, scroll through this list here. Congratulations, David Shulkin uh, at D Shulks on Instagram. Uh, you just won the book. Congratulations to you. Someone will be in contact from the podcast. And by someone, I mean Alana. Alana's going to reach out to you and uh, figure out how to get you that book. Congratulations. Autographed copy coming your way. Please let us know what you think of the book. I, I loved it. All right, Ben. So there's not much to talk about news-wise, huh? (laughs) Nothing at all. Except, uh, as we're recording this, two hours ago, the Writers Guild of America authorized the strike. So the strike is happening. The WGA strike that everyone was hoping maybe wouldn't happen, it's on. And and as I recall, in 2007, the last time there was a WGA strike, I was uh, gearing up to make my first feature, Alien Raiders, also my most recent feature. <laughs> and and our writer, Julia, Julia Fair, was busting her ass to get me that script. And at 12.05 a.m., she sent me uh, the script and she wasn't allowed to work on it even at all after that because we shot it all during the WGA strike. Yeah, it's really interesting timing, too, because executive salaries all just came out because of the disclosure rules. So all of the executives that are a part of the AMPTP negotiations right now, including like uh, Discovery and Disney and Fox, all of the salaries of the top people just came out. And it's like, you know, their, their salaries kind of range between like 
on the low end, 15 million a year to the high end, like 300 million a year. Ew. So it's uh, it's not exactly great timing for studios to be claiming how and, and almost every single one of them got between like a 20 and 60 percent raise in 2022. So it's mm-hmm. like there's a lot of money that were just handed over to executives who now have to say how they don't have any money to pay writers. <laughs> well, and, and the other unions basically like they haven't obviously uh, decided to go on a strike. And I don't think IATSE can go on a strike because last year was their big chance to do that. And they uh, at, at the 11th hour, they cut a deal with the AMPTP companies. But I'm kind of fascinated by, uh, you know, the possibility of a SAG and or Teamsters and or DGA strike. And I'm in the Directors Guild. Notoriously, to my knowledge, the DGA has never, ever, ever gone on strike. And if you're listening to this, if you're thinking about a DGA strike, it's not just directors. It's all like the DGA runs set operations. So that's unit production managers, line producers, first, second, second, second ADs, key set PAs. Those are all DGA positions. Key so set the, PA is DGA? Yeah. I, I didn't on, know yeah. that one. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't run a film without production managers, line producers, first AD, second AD, second, second. Those are all DGA positions plus the director. So uh, I was talking to uh, my partner in crime, uh, Bob DeRosa, the other day about it. And he was saying, well, if the DGA went on strike, this the companies would have to crumble. Like it would be a week. The wisdom I have heard from grizzled industry veterans is that we're looking at like a three-month strike here. Mm -hmm. So it'll be a real crappy summer, at least, you know, for television, you know, TV that doesn't have scripts already ready to go and movies that aren't already in production or aren't WGA signatories. In other words, like if you have a non-WGA writer, they can write your movie if your company is not a signatory. But if it is a signatory, you, you can't hire them and they would be scabs and it would ostracize them from a, f- a future in the union. So for all those people, I'm interested to see ultimately how it goes down. And I know I'm a broken record about this, but I also feel like the big difference between this strike and the strike in 2007 is that the showrunners have been kind of the ascendant people who are running more of the big things now. So, you know, in 2007, it was directors. Mm. Now it's showrunners. So take somebody like Vince Gilligan or whoever. Sure. You know, you got Vince Gilligan. Yes, he became a, a director. He's directed a bunch of episodes of Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad and stuff, but he's primarily a writer. He's a showrunner. He creates these massive hit shows. And those writers have never really been at in the catbird seat the way they are right now. And then add to that, that since the last strike in 2007, streaming has taken over the industry and streaming is run by technology companies not entertainment companies. And these people are notoriously anti-union. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see how this clash goes down because this is primarily going to be about streaming royalties and royalties have not been forthcoming from, uh, for many of these streamers that you always hear that, like, if you get a Netflix deal, you're going to get paid more upfront because they're going to give you zero residuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know, again, uh, I'm not allowed to disclose what they say at DGA meetings, but I know that this is something they talk about. I don't think that's a huge, uh, huge surprise to anybody. It's been interesting the people who have been coming out and talking about this, too. I mean, even uh, Damon Lindelof, who, uh, of course, has the new TV series uh, Mrs. Davis, just was quoted by The Hollywood Reporter that this might be the only way to adapt to the times is to actually have a work stoppage. He's not he, he says, quote, I don't support a strike. I don't think that's what anybody wants, but we do support a fair deal. And if a strike is what it takes for us to achieve that, so be it. Well, so. the other thing about strikes is it enables all the networks and studios to clear their desks of overall deals or whatever kind of deals they've cut with writers, development deals, to kind of clear house of people who aren't producing for them. And so there's a lot of people who are on the payroll making money. And I've known people like this who year after year write a pilot. Sometimes it gets made, sometimes it doesn't. They pitch new ideas. They get all the way to the point of pilot. Every once in a while, those becomes a, one of those becomes a TV series. But- now they can be like, OK, well, we're just going to get rid of the ones that, you know, where we haven't gotten a, a show out of it. And it's a little 
Machiavellian to think that the networks might be wanting some kind of a work stoppage. Mm. A counterpoint to what you're talking about with Damon Lindelof was on um, the Martini Shot podcast with Rob Long, and he used to be on KCRW. And it's a, if you don't listen to it, it's it's a great short snackable podcast. Comes out every Wednesday. He does it for the Ankler now. And Rob Long is a veteran, veteran, veteran TV writer. He and producer. He uh, he was a writer on the original Cheers. Mm. That's how that's how long this guy's been writing. And he dispenses all kind of wisdom. And he kind of talks about in the the previous strikes he didn't really support. He didn't oppose them vocally, but he wasn't like in his heart behind them. And this one, he's very behind. Mm. And uh, I think the Writers Guild and writers in general are a little bit fired up about this because like you're saying these executives at these companies are making, you know, 20 million dollars, 300 million dollars and they're not disclosing data that they could disclose to all the trade guilds and the way that the unions and the guilds get people activated is like taking care of you financially and residuals for the guilds that's the writers guild the screen actors guild and the directors guild residuals are a huge thing how many i mean like actors are a little bit different but how many writers do you know of like wrote one or two movies that hit big and then never had another big movie quite but a few they're, a lot but they're able to yeah. make money off, they're able to continue to make their their salary yeah. for that job uh, as that project continues to be a hit and exactly yeah. for the thing that made a lot of money for somebody else they get to participate in that yeah it, it's interesting i had uh i had lunch with someone who is uh, very involved in wall street and in the industry and he had some very interesting observations specifically about whether or not this is a perfect excuse for these publicly traded companies to say to wall street well you know if we have a dip right now there's nothing we can do you know there, it's there's a work stoppage there's something going on and they can use that to justify all kinds of extra cuts and layoffs and things which a lot of companies are trying to get leaner right now because they hire and had to make certain choices uh, during the pandemic in particular to protect their bottom line, protect their position. But it turns out a lot of these companies got swollen with people that they didn't actually need. Mm. And now there's been a lot of uh, a lot of jettisoning. And it could very well be that uh, this is a perfect excuse for publicly traded companies to do even more belt tightening and cutting people free to get to a a more profitable state. And uh, we already know that a lot of uh, CEOs get bonuses uh, if they can meet expectations and achieve certain uh, efficiencies. So who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens here. But uh, there's not a lot of lending going on. And when money is free, it seems to me that uh, people are, are far less concerned about this sort of thing. But since lending is, uh, has been reduced and there might be a perfect excuse for, for work stoppage, who knows? Maybe we'll see, we'll see what's going to happen. Well, I hope it, uh, it ends soon and amicably and uh, we get the residuals thing going. Hopefully the, the wisdom that has been handed to me that this is going to be a May to September situation turns out not to be true, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's hard know. to say. Well, you know, I the more I'm talking to people and the more topsy-turvy it is, I could see this going a number of different ways. So I'm just going to not polish a crystal ball. I'm not going to make any predictions. We'll yeah, see how but it goes. I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure we're going to talk about it a lot heading into the summer. How, how can we not? It's, it's everywhere. Well, let's go ahead and get uh, to our interview with W. Camel Bell. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Well, first of all, you know, like as someone who's now directing documentaries, I think it's interesting that the subject matter that you've chosen, I don't see it necessarily as as a comedy act or anything like that, as a stand-up comedy act. But do you ever look at a topic from the bird's eye view when you're first approaching it and go like, this should be comedy or this should be a documentary and and I'm going to, you know, put that different hat on? And what makes the decision for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly... It's really about the material and uh-huh. what you're trying to tell. So I have told many jokes on stage about having mixed race kids that are great. They're all, I'm a really good comedy writer. <laughs> <laughs> but there's just the thing about like that format is sort of it's sort of thin in a way that like you can only tell what you can tell. And yeah. your kid can't come on stage and tell their side of it. You know what I mean? So, I mean, they, uh. it could, but it's just like, <laughs> and I've also, I would say without even realizing it, I've been a fan of documentaries as long as I've been a fan of comedy. So I, I think that this is kind of now these things coming together. Like, as I've talked about, like my mom back in the, uh, back in the day, we only had four TV stations and one of them was PBS. <laughs> <laughs> so like I, I spent a lot of time watching PBS. And so my mom would sit me down and go tonight. We're watching uh, eyes on the prize on PBS. Yeah. And it was about the history of black folks in this country up until that point. And so I have spent a lot of time in my life or watching, like for me, I think 
probably the documentary that maybe influenced me the most is the uh, the Crayon Factory on uh, Mister Rogers, <laughs> like, the, like, the, like a short <laughs> film about how crayons are made. And I, I I've looked I've since looked it up to watch it again and go, yeah, this still stands up. So oh, I got to check that out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it's like a, it's just about how crayons are made. It's there's no words and it's just like, but as a kid, it really stuck with me. And so I've always been a fan of like how stuff is put together and and I've always been a fan of like documentaries are able to communicate but also entertain. And I think I also just was coming of age at a time where like there was this new wave of documentarians who were putting themselves in on camera, like Morgan Spurlock and yeah. um, Michael Moore. And, and then that's all this sort of documentary travel television, like even like Mike Rowe on the track. Like these are the things that they used to do on PBS, but these people are allowed to have more personality basically. Yeah. Yeah. Bourdain doesn't get enough credit for how funny he was. You know what I mean? Mm. So I think that seeing people be funny made me go, oh, I could do that over there, you know, but I didn't know how to get there. I just sort of followed my nose and suddenly I was in offices at CNN and they're like, we'd like you to do a show like Tony's, but about racism. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, I think that like, that's, that's what happened. But yeah, I definitely, it's about the material. So I'm pretty clear the difference between like, oh, this thing happened to me. It's funny. I should say it on stage versus like, I just read this article and I didn't know about this and Maybe there's something more here. You know, maybe there's a project here. Well, and, uh, you know, this documentary seems like it's obviously very personal to you. So it makes sense to have you inserted into it. But really, you're mostly in, I mean, you're in a few shots here and there, but you're mostly off camera conducting interviews. And to me, one of the most interesting things about documentary is like how you present the interview, how you choose to present the interview, how you choose to conduct them. Add to that, that probably more than half the people you talk to are kids and you sp- or at least half the running time or more is is talking to kids. Yeah. And, and how different is that? So talk to me a little bit about like your approach to interview technique, if you will, uh, yeah. you know, what's going through your head while you're doing it, all, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So it's funny. I think I, I remember years ago when the Sixth Sense movie came out, M. Night Shyamalan said, if I'd had one, if I'd had more time, I could have figured out a way to take the ghosts out of it completely. Like he just <laughs> felt like there was another level he could have gotten to. And so I feel like if I had more time, I would have taken my, I could have gotten myself out of it completely, <laughs> but, yeah. but it just works that like, that was a good way to get from point A to point B sometimes. And because I've done that a lot in my life with all, with like United, even like the Cosby doc wasn't conceived of me doing VO. It just became like, there's holes here we got to get to. And also it helped me really establish the premise if I was able to say it out loud on this, on the thing. So I think with this, it was just like, I really was just trying to be sensitive about the fact I don't want anybody to think that I'm some sort of egoist who's like, my family's super interesting. You should look at us. <laughs> so I was really careful about how much I was in it. Even yeah. my wife, we talked about, should we talk in it? Should you talk in it? And it was just like the other kids in it are so great and their families are so great. We would have to cut them out to put ourselves in it. It's also important to us that it was an hour because we wanted it to be something that families and kids could watch together and kids tap out after about 45 minutes, but we pushed it to an hour. So, so yeah. And then really even how we did the interviews we made sure that the kids were sitting very comfortably. So we didn't put them in any sort of weird chairs, like yeah. wherever they want to sit, how they, so they can sit comfortably on the floor with their feet on the ground. And then we just got the camera super low and then I got super low. So it was like, I was the one who was sort of in the uncomfortable chair and so while they could sort of, and they could look me straight in the eye. Cause it's really important also that when, when you see documentaries with adults, they're looking right at the, right at the camera or right off camera to the documentarian, to the interviewer. And so for me, I was like, I want the kids to be able to, I know that like how people are framed is super important and I want them to look like expert witnesses and how you do that is by giving them a proper frame. So we talked yeah, about yeah. that a lot. Well, and you, it seemed like you had two cameras on most of the interviews. Yeah, we did have two cameras. Yeah. So you always want the, the B cam so you can, obviously it helps in the edit. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of talking to them, you know, I, I'm uh, a big fan of like Errol Morris and his interview yeah. technique. Like he has a real interview technique, yeah, not the, just the, the Interatron. The, but there's yeah. the Interatron, but also like he just lets people talk and then he doesn't respond and then they keep talking. But yes. with kids, I have a five year old kid. I would have to keep, you know, constantly uh, poking him and, and asking him questions. Like what was the difference, I guess, between interviewing the children and interviewing the adults? Because the because like the stuff you got from the kids was so heartfelt, so sincere, so profound. Yeah. And I'm like, when I was that age, I was definitely not that profound or sincere <laughs> about anything. So, uh, well, I mean, some of this is in casting too. half the kids are kids that I knew because they had grown up with my daughter, my oldest daughter. Yeah. So there was a sense of like, I know who the ringers are in your friend group. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I know who the kids who I've already had conversations like this, or I know their parents are having these conversations. So Kanani, Mila, and even Anissa, who's new to her school, I had been around her enough to know that like, you have something here and you mm. know. And so there was that. And then there's the thing about like, really, even before you roll the camera, like just talking to the kids and warming them up, 
Mm-hmm. Like, so it's just like, hey, how you doing? What'd you have for breakfast? Why did why did you do this? Why did you want to do this? Like, you know, like <laughs> my mom told me, okay. <laughs> and also like showing them, like, look at the camera, letting them like get as comfortable in the space as possible. And then having some basic questions, but letting them lead the way and then pursuing whatever train of thought they had. And also the thing that certainly Errol Morris, and I don't know if I learned this from him, but I also know that like, if you just shut up, people will keep talking. That Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. So like, <laughs> the same is true for kids, especially if they're having a good time, they will just keep talking. So like, and even if you want to respond, sometimes like, not yet, because yeah. you don't know, what's, <laughs> you can sort of see their brain working. So, so there's a little girl named Sumaya, who I didn't know, who was a producer, found her and her family. And Sumaya, I, she was wonderful. Yeah, I, she, I, I, I mean, she, she's the secret. She's like the secret yeah. sauce of the whole movie. She like, was you know. really pro- like she, she was saying stuff that was just like really profound and hitting me. And also, yeah. again, making me feel like what a shallow jerk I was at the same <laughs> age, because like she's just thought about life on a level that, you know, I, yeah. I didn't get to until years, years later. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just a lot of like surprises that these kids say and you sort of go, huh. And you're like, why would I interrupt this? Like, why would I, <laughs> like going into this, it was really important to me to create something that was like, it's about quote unquote heavy topics, but I wanted it to feel lyrical and light where it could. And that was what it was important. So a lot of that is like leaving space. Uh, let's talk about your cinematographers and, and like when you uh, start a project like this, you know, what do you say to them? How do you approach them? And, you know, like how important is the lighting or versus mm-hmm. like giving the interview subjects like infinite freedom to do whatever they want and not have to worry about like, hey, you need to be this distance from the camera or, you know, especially I mean, we talk kids. a lot about like the frame and how I want. I really like a bigger frame when you can see more of the person. They just sort of feel like more authoritative. And I think with kids, especially if you if you're if the A cam is too close on them, it feels too tight for me. It feels too constricting. And so I really like to have I'm always talking about, like, can we give this frame as much space as possible, which sometimes annoys the sound people because then they're like, but the, the booms all the way up here. Yeah. But I really want to, like, let that ki- let that person's body take up as much of the frame as possible, because it also allows them to talk like this. You know what I mean? As, yeah. I, as I get out of camera, as I get out of frame. Uh, so yeah, I really talk a lot about that. And really there's a lot also about like what's in the background. We did a lot of set cause we were like, none of these houses were anybody's houses. These are all like houses we rented. And we did a lot of like set decorating to sort of make things friendly for the kid in a more fun environment. And when the kids would sit down, I'd be like, look at that over there. What is that? Like they're, they're sort of, so they could engage with an environment and feel like they weren't just sitting down in a, in a office somewhere giving court, giving a deposition. <laughs> no, that's interesting too, that I didn't really, I mean, I don't really think about locations in a, in a documentary that much but like when i was watching it it felt like i noticed we kept coming back to some of the to some similar locations or maybe the yeah. same locations but like i just, it just felt homey it felt like i was in some that was house. what was important like the, the well really what happened is that the first weekend of shooting we did we had one house and we shot a lot of the interviews with the kids in one room we just sort of turned the camera but we thought it was test shoots we thought it was like hbo was like gave us some money to develop it basically uh-huh. and out of, and so we really didn't even think about like oh, it's the same room like we we changed angles, but you could definitely, if you're smart, you can see that a lot of this is the same room. We just sort of shifted some angles around. But out of that shoot, I was like, we shot for like two or three days, three days. And after that weekend, I'm like, oh my God, I think we're almost done. Like it just felt like this wasn't a test. This is yeah. actually the film. And that's ended up being like the, a, a bunch of the interviews were shot in the first so, three days. Oh, really? Yeah. How, how many, like, I, I don't usually talk about how long a shoot is, but, you know, for an hour long documentary, about how many days did you shoot for? I'm going to say for this, it was, I mean, because we packed a lot of interviews in, we'd probably do three in a day if we could. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'm never good at this, but it was less than 20. It was way less than 20. I would yeah, say yeah. It's probably I mean, it's 15. I mean, as far as like the interviews, probably 15 or so, but uh, yeah. And we shot a lot of kids who did not make the final cut. We have bonus materials coming out. After we realized we wanted, we first we thought the film was going to be all kids, but then once we kept working on it, we realized we want to hear from their families to see how did you get, how did this kid come to be this way? Yeah. yeah. So either you're talking to your, like with one girl, we talked to her two brothers to see like, how are you all interacting together? We talked to parents. We got my mom and my mother-in-law in to have that sort of next generation thing happening. It's such a great scene with the two of them there too. <laughs> I mean, it was, people don't understand how like, when I told my wife, I was like, I kind of like to ask your mom to do it. I know she's going to say no. And then Melissa went and asked her mom and she's like, she said, yes. I'm like, what? Like, and then I got nervous. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and my mom showed up really like, and they've talked, of course, their grandparents, they live in the same area, blah, blah, blah. But they've never had that kind of conversation. And my mom showed up like ready to have it. And I was like, 
I was a little afraid that she was going to overwhelm my mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my mom did not show to be like sort of gentle with it. She was like, this is how it was. And so, but yeah, I'm really like glad you like it because it was really a big for our family. Uh, well, yeah. And, and it's interesting, too, to think about, like, because documentary can be like, you know, Frederick Wiseman will make a documentary for three years. You know, a documentary can be any time frame, but it feels like this went in with such a clear mission, such a clear story that it was trying to tell. But it also sounds like you were there was a little bit of like a little finding it. As, there was finding were. it. There was finding it because it was like once we realized it wasn't just going to be kids, then you realize, OK, we have to figure out which kids is it going to be. And then it's about talking to their families about do you want to be a part of this? So there was definitely it was definitely. And it was never a follow doc. We did go shoot some B-roll. Once we realized who we wanted, we did shoot some B-roll. But it was never yeah. going to be like, we're going to follow a kid through their life or whatever. But uh, yeah, there was finding it. But we started, I think our first shoot was October 2001. Uh, not 2001. October. <laughs> October it's, these kids are now, they all have kids now. No, October 2021. And then, we, and you know, we shot for like three days and we edited and developed. And then we went back and then we turned it in December of last year, but it wasn't like we were shooting that whole time. We were, it was like, we were sort of like, go, what do we need? Okay, let's go over in a house. Let's go get, schedule everybody to come through. So there was like, basically, I think three locations we used as far as like where we were interviewing people. Have the kids that were, were interviewed, have you shown them the film? Have they? Yeah, we just did a screening at the San Francisco Film Festival and all the kids and their families came to that screening. And then we did a screening for through the San Francisco Film Festival for schools in the Bay Area. And a lot of the kids actually came back for that screening and came on stage. After we screened it at the San Francisco Film Festival, I went up to all of the parents who were there, parents who were either in the film or parents who had had their kids talk about them in the film and just check in to go, how you doing? And there was definitely, I mean, everybody was like really loved it because I think they could see that their kids really cared about them. And, but I, but one of the people, Greg, who's in the film with his niece, Kaylin, said that his mom really had a strong reaction. And he was like, good. Now we can have the conversation. Like, he oh, felt really? like now we can have this conversation that I've wanted to have for years about how you raised me that I've never figured out how to have. And I've heard from a lot of the families that even just filming the interviews, forget the film coming out, but just filming the interviews led to different that they had different conversations about their racial identity just because of they shot just because of how we just because of filming the interviews. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like therapy when you're when you're talking to somebody. Yes. And I also feel like and I'm sure you, you get this, like when you point a camera at someone and start asking them questions, they're going to open up in ways they might not open up to anyone ever. Yeah. And like so Paolo, whose daughter is Presley, who's in there, starts talking about his mom and colonialism and the shades of how he didn't he grew up in. Everybody said, you don't want to be dark. You don't want to be outside. You don't want to get too much sun. And then how he talked about having Presley and how he was initially happy that your skin was light. And I'm like, Woo! Like, you know, like that's a lot. And I was sort of feeling for like, I know what you're saying here and I'm going to get and I'm and we're going to make sure that it's clear what you're saying here. But this still could be weaponized against you. And I just wanted him to be OK with that. But he watched it and he was like, he actually was like, thanks for making that sound better than I said at the time. I was like, OK, good. <laughs> like Because <laughs> we had definitely cut some stuff out. But yeah, he you know, I just I think we have to be understanding this documentary thing has become so big and it's become a business and an industry. But it's also still this weird thing where, like, even though there's more money in it, the subjects aren't getting paid, which I think there needs to be a discussion about at some point. And I get that there's journalistic blah, blah, blah. But I feel like everything has shifted now. And journalism means a lot of different things than it used to. But I also think that, like, you definitely I, I feel like I don't want to leave people off worse than I found them unless they're just bad people. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? like, and these aren't bad people. No, no. I, well, and I don't I, I feel like it just kind of comes off as like a radical honesty. And, you know, yeah. somebody like me, I don't have a story like this. And it to me, it kind of gives me an opportunity to have empathy for these people who are living a different experience than, than I'm capable of living. And it, it's important to understand, like, what's going on in people's heads. And one of the things that I kept thinking about while I was watching it is it's like kind of deep. It's personal. It's stuff that could go kind of dark or upsetting, but it does it. How do you go about, as a storyteller, keeping the tone so accessible and it's not light, like insubstantial, yeah. but it's light, like I don't feel like I'm being beaten up. It doesn't feel like it has any agenda except for just to show what people are like. How do you go about approaching that and making sure, you know, through the edit and everything that that's the story you deliver? Well, certainly. So the intention we went in was like, I always said the word lyrical as we went into it because I'd already like had a lot of these conversations with my kids and I was like, these aren't intense conversations all the time even when we talk about intense things there's just ways in which they aren't they don't they come off lighter because kids are having the conversations yeah so like i told my kids like when in 2020 when george floyd was murdered by the police in minneapolis 
my kids saw the news. My two oldest daughters saw the news. They were like, what's going on? Who is that guy? And we had that conversation on a tire swing. Like they were outside on a tire swing asking me about George Floyd being spun on the tire swing. And it just because that's where we decided, that's where they decided to ask the question. Yeah. And it's really always stuck to me that like they had a, we had a very deep and intense conversation about structural racism, police brutality, the history of racism in policing, the George Floyd, black people being killed by cops and brutalized by cops on a tire swing. And so there's <laughs> something to me that's like, and people know this intrinsically. If you have a deep, difficult conversation with your friend about something that is difficult, a really good conversation like that always includes laughter and lightness. Like it just does. But we don't think about that later. We just think I had a big conversation. But if you're really like connected to someone, it's not going to stay intense the whole time. There's going to be ways in which the bubble of tension will be popped occasionally. And so for me, a lot of that is like letting these kids talk, not editing them down to the important parts, like letting them have the kid parts in there, too. So when yeah. when uh, we could have cut it, when the one little girl says, I'm I'm part llama and corgi and da -da -da -da, we yeah. cut that out. Like, you know, that's not true. That's not what you are. But really letting the kids be themselves and, and show all their personality also makes it lighter. And I mean, I think there's a little kid, one kid who's not from the Bay Area. His name is Archer. He was the half Chinese, half white kid who is sort of like sprinkled throughout. And at the end, I'm like, how am I doing? And he, he goes, you're doing good. Like to me, it was, just, yeah. it was always this funny part about like he felt fully capable of judging what I was doing and he really wanted me to know I was doing good and he's like and you picked the right kid and to me it was just like I know this kid's not in this a lot but that adds a lot to this and just so to me it was like really looking for those moments of lightness and not letting them get lost because the subject is quote-unquote heavy not not to be too out there about the idea but how different would this documentary be if you did you know uh, kids in a different city if you did like you know Branson, Missouri or something. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, when we when we first pitched this, it was like, we'll travel all over the country. And then I suddenly realized after that first weekend, like, as I, like I said, I was like, I think we're almost done. And it was like, if we go all over the country, we're only going to be shortening. We're only going to have to be yeah. editing kids down to just like the the important answers. And it really was like, I want to let these kids sort of I want this film to feel like you're really sitting with these kids for a while and really getting to know them. And so at that point, we we're like, I think it's just going to be the Bay Area, which we had to go back to HBO and go, it's just the Bay Area. And they had to wrap their heads around that because it was just like, and they said we showed them the footage and they understood what we were doing. But I really feel like if this is done well, either we make a series of these where people go around the country, where we go around the country. I think it also is a thing where some like, because I'm only in this because I have mixed race kids, but I'm sure there's mixed race directors out mm -hmm. there who could do this too and, and bring something else to it. And I think that like, or... Hopefully this just opens up if this film does well, other people will just be greenlit to do things like this and do their version of it. So I think that we're very like the trailer has been really impactful. I've seen a lot of mixed folks on Instagram on my Instagram or sharing it just like, oh, my God, I needed this when I was a child. I'm so glad this exists. And so hopefully if the film does well, it will just create a path for more people to make these things or these things have been made before, but they haven't maybe have gotten as much attention as they deserved. Uh, another another thought that I had while watching it was like, if this movie had been made in the 70s, you yeah. know, like what would the kids I, I guess the question I kept asking was, it seems to me, maybe I'm crazy, that children today are just more aware of the world around them, more aware of their own experience, more self-possessed than mm -hmm. you and you and I. I'm not yeah. speaking for you, but like no, no, our I, generation. You're right, you're right. My kids are smarter than me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's not just smarter. It's like willing to own something yeah. like this. Like I grew up as a, as a Jewish kid in central Florida in the 70s yeah. and not a lot of us. Yeah. And, you know, if you would have interviewed me, it would have been like, don't hit me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do wrong? I know. <laughs> Why are you mad at me? Why am I in but trouble? Like, but like the level of nuance that these kids all speak with is, I mean, that to me is worse. I mean, the parents also are, are very profound and interesting to hear from, but it's like the kids and their perspective. is just so crystal clear in, in such an interesting way. It, yeah, I think for sure. And I think that like, but I also think, and that's why I think it's important to market as the barrier. There's also a barrier thing happening here that these kids by nature of where they are, see more mixed race people in the world. Yeah have more of these conversations and also just generally see more weirdness in the world than kids who grow up in other parts of the world, other parts of the country. So my kids, like I'm at the point where like, I will sometimes refer to one of my kids' teachers as she, and my oldest daughter's like, they, and I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So like, she's not having this, like, I don't understand how there's all these, <laughs> she doesn't have that at yeah. all. She's correcting her old man who understands that, but just makes mistakes. So yeah. 
there's also a thing about this that the Bay Area, as much as we get credit for being this bright blue bubble, and you see in the kids, they like, it's not as perfect out here as you think it is. But there is a level of like engagement and culture here that if you that I'm sure there are kids growing up in parts of this country where they don't see a lot of mixed race kids, where they're not invited to talk about it, where their school isn't teaching them an accurate history of race yeah. and racism in this country. And so I think, which is why I think it's important to make more of these where, cause you would find out that like not every kid is maybe having the same level of like joyous understanding as the kids in this film. Well, that's why I was curious. Like if you did it in, you know, Branson, Missouri or, yeah. no, I, you know. I would, I would love to, and I would love somebody else to direct it. <laughs> like, cause I think part of this is about my experience with my kids and my community, you know? So I uh-huh. think that there's an aspect of this that is like, I would love to find people, filmmakers around the country who were, who would bring their own experience to it. And so, like I said, mixed race filmmakers, but yeah, I think if you're, I, we did an episode of United Shades about Appalachia, and there are a ton of mixed race kids in Appalachia because it's the mountains and people can't get in and out easily. So eventually you're like, I guess I'll date this black guy. You know what I mean? So <laughs> like, and but but in Appalachia, it's mostly just black and white because that's the racial yeah. that's the racial groups there primarily. I mean, certainly there are different race groups, but there's a lot more black. And, so I think if you went there, you'd be talking specifically about the mix of black and white people a lot more. And maybe the ways in which they're being taught in school is different than it is in the Bay Area. So I think you'd get a different film. And, but I still think you'd find a surprising film and that the thing that I think is most interesting is that the kids in our film talk about how very there's a very recurring message of like, I'm not a percentage of one and a percentage of the other. I'm both. Yeah. I think that that's really brilliant. Well, uh, our time is up. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I'm really glad we got an opportunity to talk. Love your documentary, and uh, we'll be encouraging people to check it out. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, so that was uh, W. Camo Bell. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We love your documentary, and I uh, can't wait to see the next one. And it's just always cool to talk to somebody who's that uh, who's that plugged into what they're doing. And uh, I think of him as a comedian because that's how I knew him. But like as, as you heard, like he's got real real craft, real chops as a director. Yeah, indeed. And now short ends. All right, so Ben, it is uh, short end time. It is time for our pet obsessions of the week. Anything out there that uh, you're obsessed about? Anything that you are uh, dying to share with our listening audience? Yeah, so I feel like we talk a lot about AI shit here, and I'm going to talk about one more, <laughs> oh, a- one more AI thing. <laughs> it's pretty cool, though. Okay. Uh, it's Wonder Studios. Have you heard of Wonder Studios? Uh, I have, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can check it out right now at wonderdynamics.com. So what it is, it's an online way to basically you upload your footage and it will like remove, like you'll have an actor or something acting in a scene. It can remove your actor and motion track their body and replace them with a CGI character lit. So it sits right in in that space. And if you go to their website, you can see some demos. It's pretty amazing. And I listened to an interview with the two founders, uh, Nikola, uh, I hope I don't, I'm going to butcher his last name. I'm sorry. Nikola Todorovic and Ty Sheridan. Ty Sheridan was the lead in Ready Player One, of Mm. all people. Mm -hmm. And they're the founders of this company. And I guess they came up with this technology while they were trying to, they were developing it to help them make a film that they were working on together or something. And they realized that they had created something bigger than, than just like, you know, an after effects script that you're going to use on one thing. Like they came up with a whole new technology. I I listened to an interview with them. Can't recommend it highly enough on uh, FX guide has a podcast. They do the VFX show and then they have a, an FX guide thing. They actually were the people who did Red Center, which was where we found Jason Wingrove, our very first guest ever on the show. But anyway, this week they interviewed those two gentlemen, Nicola and Ty, and they kind of talk about the genesis of this. And again, if you look at it on their website, it's shockingly good. You can use handheld footage. It's like, I don't even want to think about what the math is behind it. Uh, and, and in the interview, they kind of said that like, Amateur people or people doing, you know, uh, Instagram reels or something might just be happy with the the quickie results you get out of the box if you upload your stuff and replace it. But their idea is to create a suite that works for professionals on like a real on a real set, like an MCU kind of a movie where you need to, you know, do some heavy lifting. But you need to know early on, is it working? So in their conception of it, it's like 
it's a way to do body tracking and there is some face tracking in there as well. And if you watch it, it's like they're just having people in street clothes moving around in front of the camera or jogging down the street or whatever. And then they put a a fully rigged CGI character on them and it follows all their movements and it basically is placing their skeleton in virtual space where it's perceiving it to be. And, uh, you know, again, they're in the interview with them, they're saying like, this is not meant to be an end product. It's meant to be sort of like a stepping stone to get you to the end product faster. And the hooks are in there for you to bring it into Maya or Blender. Or I'm sure that they have Cinema 4D and other stuff. I'm looking at it right now as you're describing it. It's very it's very impressive. It's interesting you can see the the artifacting for their quick live version, but I have to imagine that what a amazing tool for people to be able to use to be able to previs in extremely high quality what that sort of character replacement is. And you're right, for some people, certainly something going on a phone, what they're doing right there is probably good enough for them to put it out into the world and call it a day. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty cool. And I, I recommend anyone listening to this, you know, take five minutes and go to wonderdynamics.com and just check out their website. You can uh, get an access to a beta of it. I know several people who are already messing around with it. You know, the fact that they were interviewed by FX Guide, I thought was that's a big endorsement because Mike Seymour and FX Guide, you know, the people they talk to are, you know, the VFX supervisors of Avatar 2. So th- this is way up there. And also I saw um, the first time I ever heard of them was probably a month ago. And it was, uh, they were plugged by Corridor Crew, the YouTube channel that I never stopped talking about. On here. <laughs> That's so. true. <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, that is my short end. Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? All right. So I was in Los Angeles a week ago and I was very fortunate to get invited to a screening put on by the uh, Advanced Imaging Society. They sponsored a screening over at the IMAX uh, facility in Santa Monica, which was the first L.A. screening of the 2023 HBO camera assessment series. I don't know. Did Hmm. I talk to you about this offline at all? No, you didn't. Okay, so this this is kind of like the mother of all camera tests. I mean, uh, first of all, it has a higher budget than any camera test ever produced ever. And I don't know what that budget is, but I have some understanding of like what they might have spent on construction. And uh, this is you got to understand what exactly this is. It is a 97 minute screening. And I was very fortunate. There was a, uh, a Q&A after with Sonny Bear, who, of course, you know, friend of the show has been on the show. I had a, a nice uh, conversation with him as well. And he'll come back on in the future to, to talk more about this. But he has been doing the camera assessment series, which is essentially is this glorified camera test for HBO for about 10 years now. They've done six of them in 10 years. Uh, This one started during the the pandemic and they tested out the original Alexa Mini, uh, Kodak 5219, the Blackmagic Ursa 12K, the Hmm. Red V Raptor, the Venice 2, and the Aerie Alexa 35. Uh, It is really a who's who of different sort of camera formats right now. Certainly all popular at various different price points and levels, but the Alexa Mini had sort of become so ubiquitous on sets across the world that they thought that that was going to be a good standard to start with. And they do these really well thought out, very scientific tests. And they do something, a few things that are a little bit more subjective, and they do a few things that are very scientific, and they give you all the information to make an informed decision. But even at 97 minutes, Every DP in that room goes, this test is not long enough and there is no way I can actually make real judgment calls, even though we were all seeing it in a in 4K on a giant IMAX screen. And every producer who watches it says, this test is way too long. I don't need to see any of this. And really what it is, it's a 97 minute trailer for the actual test. The actual test takes place if you're producing multi-million dollar shows for HBO, you get to go to, you know, the HBO post-production bays and pull up any and all of this stuff to see these scientific comparisons. And they do a no questions, absolutely egalitarian way of making every camera the best it can possibly look. So you are looking at the best of the best of each of these formats and you see them right next to each other. And people kept coming up to Sonny and telling him after they saw this, uh, oh my God, I want to work on shows now for HBO. I want to work for HBO. HBO did this thing. This tells me how much they, look, HBO has never been like a Netflix to tell people, oh yes, we're dictating what tools are acceptable for you. And if you look at projects like Winning Time, there are so many different formats and so many different looks and so much stuff going on. HBO does not try to get in the way of anyone's artistic vision, but what they do do is give all of the filmmakers, all the people coming to them, 
all the tools necessary to be able to make a really informed decision about what camera, what technology, what format choices they, they want to make. And they have this incredible library of stuff. They have cameras, so many cameras that have gone through the camera assessment series now over the years, year after year after year. There's years of these tests that one could uh, could look at and compare if they wanted to. And this latest one, uh, I don't want to make any uh, sweeping generalizations across it. I will. I certainly have my look. I, but I which was your favorite? I want to know what your favorite was. Uh, I sell everything but Kodak 5219. So I can't, ex- I, I don't want to wait. Say you don't the- sell film. Oh no, I don't, I don't sell film, but it's the one format that, that was tested that I don't sell. But I will say that the Alexa 35 could be most likely the hands down winner across overall, but they didn't win every category. And I got to say the Red V Raptor did really, really well in two categories, which blew my mind that the Red V Raptor is the best camera Red has ever made, period. Mm. That camera is amazing. It, it It is a next generation product. And boy, was it impressive. Of course, the Venice 2 was also amazing. And the Ursa 12K at $6,000, you look at it and go like, I, I you know, for $6,000, how is it that good? Which is also pretty amazing. The, the Alexa Mini is feeling very long in the tooth. It is, it's an older camera. It's a very old camera now, uh, comparatively speaking. And 5219 Kodak was the absolute loser in pretty much every really? category. Yeah. So, wow. I know. Strong words. It, it, it's, it's been this way for years, but if you were still under the delusion that, well, you know, film does very nice skin tone. Film does uh, very nice overexposure control, but sensitivity, low light, grading, all kinds of things. Kodak did not did not hold up. And really, you got to imagine that there's not been a lot of development in Kodak. That 5219 is a pretty old stock by today's standards. And one of the tests they literally shot by the light of the full moon, even though they did a special bath to process Kodak. 5219 to push it two stops to try to give it a fighting chance the 5219 is the most unwatchable in the existing light challenge by by far it's it's really Mm. really painful to watch there's quite a few times where there's basically nothing exposed onto the film and yeah it just it can't hang with any of the modern digital cameras now and it, it wasn't this way a decade ago it wasn't this way maybe even five years ago but it certainly has changed quite a bit now I remember years and years ago, you took me to a screening called Apples to Apples. And I remember you taking me and that was back when it was like, you know, the uh, Sony F900 and the Veracam versus film. And they were just kind of showing one next to the other next to the other. And I think at that point, we were still kind of squinting our eyes and going like, eh, digital's all right, but you know, but film. And yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if I could tell you the exact year th- that the tipping point happened, but um, yeah, it's been a while now, but I'd say probably around 2017. It's it's definitely definitely tipped. So, yeah, and really in sensitivity, we were doing stuff at Dalsa, you know, way back when that was already exceeding what you could do with, with film in certain regards. But yeah, when you look at film today next to all of the modern cameras, and I do mean all of those modern cameras, it's not even close. It's it's really not close. There there are some regards film does very well, but really the rule of thumb is it does well with overexposure. It does well with a lot of light. It does well with certain colors. Certain colors film look, looks really beautiful, but man, that's not to say that all the digital cameras didn't also look really good. So it's yeah. gotten to the point where it's really hard to tell. And I think I've mentioned on the show before, but I was having lunch with Fraser Bradshaw, our uh, third guest mm-hmm. ever. And he, I think was quoting someone else who said, we've reached peak sensor, meaning mm-hmm. not that, not that we should stop developing sensors or stop making them better, but that we've gotten to a point where the digital sensors are all really great. You know, I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you one little insight. Right after we left IMAX for the HBO camera assessment series, which you cannot find anywhere outside of a special screening with a DCP player. That, I mean, if you don't have this licensed player, there's no chance HBO will will show this anywhere. So they are showing it at IMAX because, of course, it's a professional screening room. They will do other screenings, I'm sure, in the LA area and possibly uh, you know elsewhere of this sort of elaborate trailer. But uh, don't expect to find it online. Uh, we will, in the show notes, though, put the link to the trailer for the trailer. There is a about a two minute trailer that is absolutely worth watching. And it, I would recommend everyone go to camnoir.com to, to see the show notes. I will put the link to this unlisted YouTube trailer for the HBO camera assessment series. They they wouldn't make it 
public because they didn't want to confuse people to have them think that it would be on HBO. So you have to have this link to go to it, but it's absolutely worth going to it. Oh, and, and you know, Hot Rod Cameras played a, a small part in this. The red V-Raptor prominently features the Hot Rod uh, PL adapter Mark II, which was, nice. of course, yeah, it was, you know, it was our original product, the product which, which launched our company. It was used uh, all throughout the entire test, which is, which is, of course, you know, they chose the best, the best mount. So that that's wonderful. <laughs> so, so glad they did. But anyway, yes, we'll put the the link to the, the trailer there. I recommend anyone who's listening to this, who has any interest in camera tests or understanding a little bit about this, uh, although the test does a, a brilliant job of um, presenting things in a very factual and straight ahead manner without getting overly technical. It is still aimed more for people who are technical. And there's like 50 extras in this camera test. Who has 50 extras? That that to me is just, it's just amazing. They, they, That's they, so cool though. I have no idea how much money they spent on this, but they certainly spent some money. And I always tell people, you can't trust a camera test. You have to do your own camera test. This is the exception. This is the one test I believe that you can absolutely trust the results and trust what's there because they documented it all throughout the process and did a whole round of of internal testing before they ever showed up on the day for testing, which is like, that's the way you really do it. It's amazing. It's stupendous. Can't recommend it highly enough. I'm going to stop talking about it now. I think I've been going on about this for forever. (laughs) Anyway, Ben, where can people find you if they want to get, they want to reach out to you? Go to benrock.com. You can uh, find all my social media stuff and, uh, you know, hit me up, say hi, say you listen to the podcast. Where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. We have a lot of events coming up. It's like it's get, it's a it's event season right now. We got a couple of lens events. We got a Canon event coming up. We got a, uh, you know, Cine Gear, Cine Beer. So, yeah, you know, the next 30 days is going to be really busy for events. You know, uh, hit us up at Hot Rod Cameras. You can, if you're in the L.A. area, you can come uh, check us out and have some snacks or some beer or any of those things and see yeah, some cool, def- cool Definitely tech. go to Cine Beer. I mean, I don't know post-pandemic, but pre-pandemic, that was a huge party. Uh, you know, last, uh, 2022 Cinebeer was, uh, indoor, outdoor, and it was mostly outdoor and it was a blast. We gave away like probably seven or $8,000 worth of gear too, through like the, the raffle. It was, it was very popular. It's really well attended. So I, we'll do the same this year. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Ilya. Well, that about does it for us. Who should we thank? Hey, let's thank Alana Cody, who is uh, working hard. You know, man, we were gone for a couple of weeks, but now she's making up for it with uh, interview after interview. You and I were doing interviews at the same time on the same day the other day. So, yeah, we're uh, we're busy. We're going to have a lot more stuff coming out. Let's thank uh, Kay Zalatracci, who composed all the music you heard for the show and most every other show here. Let's thank Ben Katz, who's editing us together and hopefully cutting us down to something uh, sane this week, because uh, I think I, I, I went on and on and on about a couple of things. So hopefully, hopefully you you and me both, brother. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, Ben, that just about does it for us. Uh, You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.